Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Esau McCauley. Our conversation revolves around two books, his critically acclaimed book, Reading While Black, and his brand new book, Lent, The Season of Repentance and Renewal. This 30th episode was special because we recorded it in person in front of a live audience who you may sometimes hear in the background. The conversation was an absolute joy, and you won't want to miss Esau reading from his book near the end of the podcast, a moment that brought tears to my eyes. We hope you are blessed by the conversation as well, and as always, thanks for tuning in. During the summer of 2020, I found myself as disappointed with the church as I ever have been. I say this as a person who loves the church deeply, who is thoroughly embedded in the church, and who preaches most Sundays. But during that summer, it seemed to me that the church, at least the majority culture church, in America had badly failed. Failed to bear witness to the gospel in a way that eclipsed partisan division. Failed to offer a united front in the face of a global pandemic. Most significantly, failed to offer an unambiguous rejection of white supremacy after irreplaceable black lives were extinguished. I felt some anger, but mostly I felt grief. It took some time for me to find solid footing, but I found some. With the help of the writings of today's guest, Dr. Esau McCauley. Dr. McCauley is a New Testament scholar who teaches at Wheaton College He is an ordained Anglican clergyman, and he writes for the New York Times. Macaulay represents the black ecclesial tradition, and it's from this social location that he offers a rare public voice to what I can only describe as costly hope. This is the sort of hope that refuses to shrink from the reality of despair, and yet somehow finds something beyond it. One paragraph in particular, written just after the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, has lingered long in my memory. Lamenting the way that the Bible has been used to justify racial injustice and to numb conscience against action, he nevertheless writes, There is no bigger rebellion or miracle in the history of these United States than that of the black Christians who saw in the very book used to justify their oppression a testimony to a God who disagreed. There is no greater audacity than their use of that Bible to construct, almost from scratch, a Christian anthropology that demanded a recognition of black worth. Words like these offered me solid ground on which to stand, and they alerted me to consider that in my own reflections on racial justice, this was a critical perspective that I had missed. For while many of the thoughts were new to me, they were not new to my brothers and sisters in the black church whom I needed not just to teach me to grieve and lament, but also to teach me to imagine and to hope. Recently, we invited Dr. McCauley to our campus to give a lecture about his critically acclaimed book, Reading While Black. I had a chance to sit down with him for a podcast interview in front of a small live audience to talk about Reading While Black, as well as his most recent book, which is a book about the liturgical season of Lent. How do these two traditions, the black ecclesial tradition 
and the Anglican, the liturgical tradition, connect to each other? And how do they help us journey together in repentance and renewal? We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley. Now we are joined by a distinguished guest, Dr. Esau McCauley. Esau, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. So we have two books that I'd like to talk about um, in today's okay. conversation. So we have um, your second book, but the book that you're most well-known for, Reading While Black. Um, and then we have this new book that's out as of this recording tomorrow. Yes. So you're saying that my, my, my kid's book about hair, that's not what I'm here for? It is. I mean, we could talk about it. I haven't read it. So you it call was, that my second it, book, though. That's four. Your fourth book. You counted okay. it wrong. I'm your saying, second like, and your fourth if book. If you only said, like, two of your kids and, like, you left out the other That's two, right. you know, like, <laughs> okay. if I didn't if my Does daughter. Does anybody have that book? Could somebody <laughs> run to the library or run to the library I'm quickly? Saying that my daughter, the, 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 the second, no. the kid's book is about my daughter. It's actually the third one. All right. And if, if she listened to this podcast and you skipped over it, you'd right. have to deal with Claire's. So I'm saving you. The book that is in your hand is the Lenten book, and that is the one that will be out when this podcast comes out. That's right. So today we're talking about two books, yes. your second book, Reading While Black, and your fourth book, yes. which is a book about Lent, yes. uh, Seasons of Repentance and Renewal. Yes. So these two books, I was trying to think of how do I kind of draw these together to start the conversation. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and here's what I came up with. Um, okay. So you are introducing us in Reading While Black to a vital interpretive tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, black biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. Yeah. And then in this book, your book on Lent, you're introducing us to a vital liturgical tradition, uh, the tradition of keeping the church calendar, which you expound with respect to your own yeah. Anglican tradition. And neither That's is really good. I don't have to oh, use thanks. that when I'm trying to get people to buy it. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> I'm sold. So neither of these traditions are new, right? Yes. Um, the black interpretive tradition or no. the liturgical calendar but they might feel new to many of our listeners. Yeah. And so I wonder if, by way of beginning, you could start by drawing these two things together, these two traditions that you inhabit. How did they come together in your own story? Oh, man, that's a, that's a very good question. The first tradition, the Black um, biblical interpretation, is just native. It's the air that I breathe. So um, one of the things that is true is you don't know something is odd until you leave it. Yeah. What is normal to you is just what's normal. Right. And so it wasn't until I went to seminary at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, it's an evangelical seminary in Massachusetts, that I realized that I was different. And so when I had gone to seminary, I went in with a particular goal, which is to learn Greek and Hebrew and learn how to read the Bible well so that I can like bring that exposition to life in my local context. And when I got there... I was like, oh, they don't really understand black people because the black people they talk about in class aren't the only black people that exist. The black people in their imagination mm. aren't the black people that actually inhabit the world that I lived in. And so I wrote Reading While Black to not articulate for them, but to articulate for other black people what it was I thought we were sharing as a community. The way that I, I like to talk about it is, this might seem like a, it's, a, it's a superficial one, but it's close enough to Thanksgiving to use it, is that I don't like turkey. And I think that I'm not alone in not liking turkey. I think the turkey is trash. God bless turkey. It's not that good. Trash is too hard a term. I don't want turkey hive coming at me if they listen to this podcast. But I think it's overrated. It's like, you know what? I think ham is better or like chicken is better okay. for the main dish. 
So I, said, I wonder if I just like tossed that out into the internet. It says, internet, do you like ham better than turkey? And then they go, yes, you know, we go ham, right? <laughs> and so I felt like, and then people go, yes, I recognize in what you're saying um, a, a, a feeling that I felt. And so I wrote Reading My Black, it was kind of like, hey, black people, isn't this how we read the Bible? And I hope they will go, yeah, we do. This is how we do it. And so then that would draw other people to understanding our community a little bit better. But it's really that. That's just like part of my story. Now, the other part of my story is what other things did I see when I left the black community? And left is the wrong word. When You can't get a PhD in New Testament. There are no black New Testament PhD granting institutions. Historically, black colleges don't have PhDs in New Testament. If you want to get a PhD in New Testament, you got to go to majority white school um, for the most part. And so what did you find in the wider Christian world when you were like out reading stuff? Mm. It wasn't that everything was wrong. <laughs> like, oh, I found the liturgical calendar. Um, something that helped me with my own spiritual life. It made me a better Christian. And it didn't undo anything that I thought that I learned in the black community. It just expanded it. And I think that part of what it means to be a writer is paying attention to the world, mm. seeing things, and articulating them. If reading while black is a lifetime's reflection on a people that I know and love. The Lent book is like, let me introduce you to a friend of mine that we just met a couple of years ago. Mm. That's what I was up to. And I, I wanted I wanted to help people see. And in and, and, and a lot of ways, Lent or the liturgical life, with less disastrous results, are misunderstood like the black church. The black church is misunderstood for real, like there's real trauma that's attached to it. But people like have misconceptions about what goes on in the liturgy. Yeah. I said, okay, just let me explain these things to you. You think this, that's actually not what we're up to. You think that, you know, like, um, there's like that passage that says, um, call nobody, call no man father. The Bible says it, don't call anybody father. And says, so you can't use clergy with us. I said, what you call your daddy? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so like, it's one of those things you're just trying to show people, like some of the things that you're really afraid of, you don't need to be afraid of. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And the way that you even frame that in terms of the, the fact that all of us are formed in particular traditions. And I always think of my students or even my, my own college experience of going away and how there is real wisdom where I came from, but it was local in a particular yeah. way. And a big part of going to a university is to be exposed to a wider variety of, yeah. of voices and traditions. And so the other question I have about both naming the traditions that shape our interpretations and also being introduced to new ones is that someone might read your books, either book, either of these two books of your four books, and say, uh, <laughs> "It's okay, I'll just mess with you." I just mess well, with you. well, so someone might read your books and say, "Well, this is great. Uh, this isn't my story. It's not really for me. This is somebody else's story." Yeah. But in both books, it seems to me like you're inviting readers to accompany yeah. um, either our black brothers and sisters as we together wrestle with scripture, or to accompany the larger church during the season of Lent. And yeah. so, what counsel do you give to? outsiders who find themselves invited to walk within an unfamiliar tradition, and especially when we encounter an unfamiliar tradition, I think there's a temptation to sort of be like a tourist and not, yeah. a, not a pilgrim. So what, what does it look like for us to, to do I, that? I, I, I want to say that that danger may accrue more to majority culture um, people than minority culture, because if you are a minority in the United States, 
That's your life. Yes, you're your life. To. And you're used yeah. to having to translate things that, that aren't for yeah. you to find value in them. Like, that's just kind of like what happens. And so there are all kinds of stuff that like I, I would hear in seminars kind of go, well, that doesn't directly apply. And I'll have to do the, the process of translation. Mm. And so that's just, that's just the majority of my life. And so I think that what happens is the people who think that what they do is normal don't feel that same, they're not confronted with that reality over and over again. One of the things that I did, for example, in Reading While Black, like the agenda, that sounds funny. When I, I remember when they asked me, how do you want the cover to look? I said, I just want it to be black, like super black, like black people black. And by that, <laughs> I, and, and, and the reason that the, the book opens with Outcasts yeah. at the Source Awards. That's Self the blackest analogy that I can think of. In the sense of like, if you were a part of black culture of a certain age, everybody knew about it. Hmm. And if you weren't a part of that culture, you probably never heard of the Outcasts at the Source Awards and the phrase, the South got something to say. And so when black people read this, I, you, I can show you the amount of times people quote tweeted me. They said, I cannot believe he started a theology book called The South Got Something to Say. They knew it was on, mm -hmm. right? Because that was from our culture. Mm -hmm. But everybody else had to figure out, maybe Google the source awards, <laughs> Google Outcast besides before Hey Ya, before that, there was Outcast before that. That process that I wanted the non-black reader to go to, through was a self-educational because I do that all of the time. I remember when I was like coming through seminary and the teachers and undergrad, the teachers, and even in churches, the teachers are trying, or the professor, the preacher's trying to identify with the community. And so they talk about Monty Python. I never saw Monty Python growing up. Never saw an episode of Friends. Never saw an episode of Seinfeld. Still has it, even though it's on like, um, what's it called? Netflix. And so the, all of those cultural things, Taylor Swift, I had to Google like Taylor Swift stuff. I'm having to figure out yeah. to, to understand the jokes. Mm. I had to figure out another culture. I had mm. to become culturally conversant. Mm. I wanted people to have to become culturally conversant as a pedagogical benefit for them so they can see their difference. And I think that one of the things that I learned is that something doesn't have to be for me to benefit me. Mm. And I hope that people can say that even if the book is not written to them, it can benefit them. One of the dangers, one of the things I was trying to avoid in writing Reading While Black was to write about black people instead of to black people. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between explaining black people to a majority culture audience and writing in a way that addresses the actual needs of African-American Christians. And I was trying to do the latter, but I thought that because black people are fundamentally human like everyone else, and addressing the needs of that community would also speak to other people. And in the same way about, it's not exactly the same because the stakes are lower, but Lent and the liturgical year is alien to a lot of people. And when it's alien, you can just assume that you're right. Mm. And we're wrong. That's one of the chapters in the book. Um, I don't even know where it is, but I made a, I make an argument that I'm right. And the, the thing that I say in the book is the following. If you want to say God had a nation, God had a nation, right? He just brought him out of slavery and he could form the nation in any way that he wanted. He had like an opportunity to say, okay, here's a blank slate of people. I'm going to make them into a good group of people. But what did he do? Give him a ritual. Hmm. Give him a ritual. He said, I'm going to, I want you to do these times, these things at this time of the year, over and over and over again in exactly the same way so that you will be formed into a people. Hmm. And so when people say, well, Jesus came to do away with the law, that's not about the pedagogical technique that God deployed, right? I'm talking about how did God choose to form a people through ritual and liturgy? 
So even if the actual liturgy changes from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the idea that God may use repeated rituals and calendars to form a people, maybe, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. You can just like walk through verse by verse through Romans for 15 years if you want to. God bless you. He will use that too. So I'm not mad about that. I'm saying that at least we have an example in the New Testament, in the, in the Old Testament, of God deploying a pedagogical technique to form a people so that maybe our instinctive fearfulness of ritual and repetition has nothing to do with the Bible itself. And whether or not people become, I what do I care? I don't get like a dollar per Anglican. I don't know. I don't care, right? I don't care. I genuinely don't. Um, I mean, what do I care? What I'm saying is there are these great things that the church has done that's, that's, that's actually shown the ability to form a people. Mm. And maybe we miss out on something when we ignore those things. Mm. And if you want to talk about what does it mean to leave a community, if you leave a community and you go out into the wider world, education, whatever, you're never unchanged by it. You don't reject everything. Mm. When you find something that is compelling to your imagination, you kind of go, that is something that was not native to me, that I saw and found useful, and now I'm going to incorporate that into my own spiritual life. And I hope to kind of lower the fear that people have of those things mm. so they might include it in their lives as well. Mm. So I want to go back to something you said about, um, because it, it connected with my own sense of my vocation as well. Last night when we picked up Issa from the airport, we were kind of introducing ourselves and I said, oh, I study theology and culture. And he's like, well, what do you have to say about theology and culture? <laughs> and I sort of, you know, changed the subject, right? Yeah. Oh, Shannon knows a lot about astronomy. Yeah, he you know? did. You kind of ran um, from that. Were yeah, you saving it for right now? Oh, uh, well, I, I didn't know I was, but I guess yeah. I was. So, you know... Um, my my parents met in the Philippines. My mother's Filipino. My father's Caucasian. And I grew up in a majority white context. And I realized only recently, really in the last few years, that my theological work is in so many ways my attempt to sort of work out and integrate my, yeah. my lived experience. So why am I so interested in theology and culture? Because I feel this need in my body, right? To say, how do these things fit together? These yeah these different spaces that I've inhabited where I knew that I was different. I knew I wasn't, uh, I didn't fit cleanly in any, in any particular mm -hmm. space. And so just even hearing that, reinforcing that sense of how lived experience shapes even the sort of work we do and the way yeah. that we approach our vocation. I don't know if you want to respond to that. But. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I struggle. It's funny, I wish that, I, the, don't you sometimes wish that you believe less complicated things? <laughs> <laughs> because it would be easier to slide into like one ideological camp or the other. Yeah. And what I mean by that is if I came in here and I talk about the black church, that would be great. Easy. It's like a, not easy, but that's like one particular like, you know, road to travel. But then I got to say, but the liturgy is cool too. <laughs> yeah. Um, put that and, together. And put that together yeah. and, and make sense of it. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, like me trying to integrate, well, I mean, I, I could say that like in some ways, like reading while black, which I won't tell y'all all of that is a deep liturgical book. And if you're paying attention, there's the influence of the stuff that I learned later in there, but we won't go into all of that today. Um, and it's methodologically informed by some of the stuff that I encountered later. But I think that a lot of my own writing is trying to say, how do the, all of the things that God and his graciousness has, I think, convinced me 
of how I ought to order my life, how does it make sense as a whole? And so I think we're all trying to write our way towards our healing. Yeah. And that's the reason why, like, we need each other. Yeah. That um, what I can't see because I'm so caught up in my three or four things, you might be able to show me. And, and what you can't see, I might be able to show you. Mm. And together we might discern the mind of Christ. Mm. That's why we need the whole body of Christ engaged in a theological enterprise. Mm. And that's why resisting the, like, monoculture that sometimes pervades theology is for theology's own redemption. Yeah. Then it might actually become that which God called it to be, which is the entire body of Christ thinking the things of God, trying to follow in the ways of God. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, as I was listening to your lecture this morning, I thought of this passage where Jesus is talking to some religious leaders and says, you know, you break the commandment to keep your own tradition. Yeah. And so we've been talking about tradition in a positive sense, but there's also a negative sense, the sense of tradition yeah. becoming that which blinds us from scripture, right? Yeah. which is why we need to continually have new eyes to see it. And so I just want to, point out an example from reading about black, which you use when it comes to popular political theology, the discussion many times in majority context starts in Romans 13, submit to authorities that commute protests. It props up, you know, the status quo. Uh, and you say in your book, well, the question is why did we decide that that was the text we should start with? Yeah. And how would things change if we started with another text? And you sort of did the same thing this morning as yeah. well. And I wonder if you could speak to this as a new Testament scholar, because we have, um, scripture speaking with many voices yeah. and yet telling one story. So part of this is a question about unity and diversity of scripture and yeah. where do we begin when we start studying scripture. Mm -hmm. But it's also about the fact that most of us come to the Bible wanting the Bible to tell us what we already think. Yeah. Right. We're wanting it to just basically tell us your, your vision of the world. Like, so when you stand to preach on a lot of times, somebody stands to preach on Sunday and it's like, well, just tell me that I'm basically right. I'm basically okay. I'm basically yeah. okay. Keep, it, keep it going. Yeah. Exactly. And so can you can you tell us more about how do we place ourselves as Bible readers in a better posture so that Scripture can, as you say, tell us what we don't already know? Yeah, I think that this is one of the things that I challenge myself about. So I'll talk about me first and I'll talk about other people and how reading and interpreting can change us and how I was changed in trying to read the Bible better when writing and reading while black. I think that before I wrote reading while black, I was maybe 20% nicer in the sense that like I had adopted kind of an, an evolutionary account of how justice works and that the purpose would be to, be to be measured in your language, never say the wrong thing. And if I'm perfectly respectable, respectable, then people are going to listen to me. Mm. And then in the process of reading the Bible, I saw that the prophets weren't always respectable and they often got themselves into trouble for the things that they said. And then I began to read people like Frederick Douglass, and who who figures heavily in that book and in my imagination. And Frederick Douglass would just say stuff. I was like, man, if I said that, I'd get canceled. I said, well, you got to say it. He he taught me by his reading of the Bible how to read the Bible and talk about it in the way that, that the truth of it comes across, even if it has somewhat sharp edges. And so I guess one of the things that I, that I say to my students is, if God agrees with you on every point, you're either a, perfectly, a perfect <laughs> theologian or you created an idol. And so one of the ways that I would say we know we're learning to read the Bible better is, is that when we're constantly still able to be challenged by the text. Hmm. Now, how, how, are we able, how are we able to challenge ourselves and to see where we might be myopic, that's actually where, once again, it, it's not actually a different question. It's when we come, so, someone from outside of us, get up us to see the things we can't see. 
That's the reason I really think the social location is not just an important part, it's vital. So when I talk about the, the use of Romans 13, for example, like no one ever, I mean, I, I was in Christian circles my entire life. I had one professor, not professor, I had a high school teacher who said one time in class, maybe that was bubbling under the surface, that maybe, I just I thought about this, so the guy named I'm going to say his name because he might get it mad. He might, not, he might not own all the implications I gave him. But a high school teacher told me this. A white high school teacher at a Christian school said, he was teaching his class and he said, I want you all to explain how you can justify the, the American Revolution in light of Romans 13. And his class were like, oh, the students, were, their minds were blown. And he was like, yeah, we never bring Romans 13. He, he didn't go anywhere else with that. His point was he actually was, <laughs> interestingly enough, a quirky guy, doesn't believe we should have the American Revolution. We should have just submitted it to, to England. That was, his, that was his take. And he said, prove me wrong. And I was like, oh, you're right. We never bring the Romans 13 energy to the American Revolution. It always comes to black people mm-hmm. are protesting. Mm-hmm. And so that idea, though, that an Amer- the American exegetical enterprise we don't apply Romans 13 to our own to America's actions. We apply it to people who are questioning America's actions. Has is often needs to be leveled levied by a victim of that kind of interpretation. And as the victim of that interpretation, I am able to say, that's not right. Right? Because I experienced that wrongness in my soul. Mm. And so I think that my position as a um, person who's experienced it helps me to see the Bible better in that circumstance. It doesn't actually mean that on every circumstance I see the Bible better because yes. sometimes my own social location may cloud my interpretation of things. Maybe things that I can't see. Um, you know, I'll give you a, a one example. Maybe this to kind of put to the other side, even though I'm not to do both sides of them. I think that sometimes African-American Christians struggle with language of reconciliation, some justice-loving Christian reconciliation, because they say, well, no, no, reconciliation is, you know, can sometimes function as a cover for injustice right. and that we can't be reconciled if we weren't initially together. So reconciliation is a myth. You know, like, so in other words, our experience of having rec- reconciliation used against us to Damp down all of our protests of justice. Right now, you just have to forgive, forget yeah, about forgive. the past, and so that makes us yeah. like really right. hesitant with any forgiveness stuff yeah. and any reconciliation stuff. Yeah. But forgiveness and reconciliation are actually biblical concepts that we have to work our way through our trauma to actually get towards. Mm. And so it doesn't mean when I say that. What I'm saying is like that trauma makes us sometimes hard. Yeah. Like when you start talking about seventy times seventy forgive stuff, and black people got to well, hold on. What do you mean? Because like that's 70 times 70, you know, that stuff was like used against me. So we're kind of like, we're, we're struggling with it. And so it doesn't mean the social location opens up the text in a new way and that it's always a positive experience. Sometimes our trauma makes it hard for us to deal with passages. And so I think that we need each other to feel what is lacking. And maybe God designed it that way. So we actually have to become a family to read his word properly. And so I don't think that there's a magical tool um, and maybe I'll, the, the last analogy is I think of the Bible um, like music. I'm not a piano player, so this is a bad analogy. Please forgive me. But um, like all of the all of the the sounds can be true in themselves, but if you hit the wrong note at the wrong time, a sound that could be objectively good strikes the wrong note. Mm. Or if you hit the same note over and over again, the music isn't beautiful. Mm. So to me, I think the good theology is playing the music in such a way that you get the right note at the right time for the right length. Mm. And I think that a lot of theology is the notes are out of whack. Mm. 
And so because the notes are out of whack, the music doesn't sound right. And so God's word doesn't come through us clearly. Mm. And so what I try to do is figure out a way to have all, as much of the text of scripture as I can kind of at my disposal so that I can play the music. Mm. And I can't take keys off the keyboard. Mm. It may be a minor key instead of a major key, but it's not off the keyboard. And to do good biblical theology is to find the way to play all of the text mm. so that so so, so the, the beauty and the harmony kind of comes forth. Mm. And I think for too long, like only one person was arranging the music. So you're going to get one style of song. Yeah, I love in your book as well, you write about this virtue of of black biblical interpretation of patient wrestling with the text. Yeah. And this is a costly patience. This is not yeah. just like a be patient, right? It's, it's this sense of, and the way that you say it, I think is you say that like Jacob, we wrestle with the text yeah. confident that it will bring a blessing and not yeah. a curse. And could you say more about that, that posture of patience before the text when we have, I mean, there's text that all of us could probably say, I don't know why that's in the Bible or, yeah. or it seems like that's not right. And yeah. yet, Sometimes we feel like we're just being asked to swallow it, but you say there's actually another way forward yeah. of a patient wrestling with it under the conviction that God is going to bring us a blessing and not a curse through. Yeah, I think um, it's funny that you mentioned that passage because I want every book has like 15 titles that it goes through when you're writing mm-hmm. it. One of the titles of Reading While Black, one of the many titles that it didn't become was Jacob Wrestling mm-hmm. from that line, but I didn't think that people would get it. It's a little, it's like one of the problems with the writers yeah. is that we try to be That's 20% right. too cute. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the, 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 the no. pub committee and the like radical people go, let's just call it. Now, Reading yeah. Why Black was on the list yeah. of like 15 names, but I, it wasn't not my, 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 my number one choice. It's funny. I probably had I called it Jacob Wrestling unless people would have yelled at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If people saw Reading Why Black and they kind of lost their minds. Right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyways. Um, as far as, I mean, it's just true. People people just got in their feelings about a title, like read the book. Anyways, um, <laughs> what I would say is Jacob, the, the idea of Jacob wrestling is just how I learned how to be a Christian. Mm. Um, and I have seen, maybe, this, maybe this, this, this is my own honesty. I do not think that liberation comes from tossing aside the text. I don't trust the, in other words, I don't trust the social, cultural, and political consensus of any given generation to tell me what freedom is. Mm. I feel like God can tell me what freedom mm. is. And I feel like God has articulated it in the text of scripture and amongst other places, but in the text of scripture, primarily. I'm a Protestant. That's our um, special revelation. And so I feel like the text that we have are the text that God has given us for our good. And that doesn't mean that it's always straightforwardly good. Um, but that we have to wrestle with it and make sense of it. And and that wrestling with the text is part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, I mean, I wish I, I could I could maybe say some nerdy stuff about I'll say I'm gonna go, go I'm yeah. gonna, gonna go we're gonna go full nerd here. Is you gotta have to have two modes of revelation. One is kind of God going around culture. That's almost if you imagine something like um, I think it's the Joseph Smith story where the, um, the 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 Bible comes from heaven directly and needs to find like the goggles or whatever to translate that. That's this is correct, right? And so in other words, like there is no interaction between um, the divine text in this that tradition it's unmediated, unmediated, yeah. it's directly there. Or God comes through culture, right? That He speaks to people in a place. And that means the text is going to bear all the marks of that culture. Mm. And so God in his wisdom has has depicted, has given us through culture, right? The Bible doesn't pretend to be 
absent the ancient Near East or absent the Greco-Roman world. It's in culture. But the beautiful thing about the Christian gospel then is that we believe that God can speak a transcendent word through culture, not around it, but through it, that it can both be socially located and universal. And if it's socially located and universal, then it's going to be hard for me because I'm not the original audience. But just because I'm not the original audience, it doesn't mean that God can't speak a transcendent word. Unless we want to say God can't speak through culture, which means you need a kind of a, a, an around mode of divine revelation. Mm-hmm. But since I want to believe that God can do two things, he can speak to a particular people at a particular time, the words you need to hear, and that word can endure. Mm-hmm. And so part of me being a Christian who's a Bible interpreter is trying to show how that particular word has endured. And that's hard, that's hard work, but it's the hard work of um, biblical interpretation. And behind that, if you want to go, people who are still listening at this point in the podcast, <laughs> if God can speak through culture to, to, to communicate transcendent good, then it means that culture isn't the problem. That, that God's use of culture in the Bible is an indirect affirmation of all of our cultures. Mm. That God can, can, can use our cultures if we're faithful to him to speak words that can transform society. Mm. So I don't have to be less, I don't have to get rid of black culture to like believe or follow God. Mm. I have to allow my culture, like every other culture to be critiqued by scripture, but there's something through who I am and how I was made that God can use to speak, not just to me and my people, but to everybody. So Mm. the Bible contains within it all kinds of like cascading emphases that I think are important. Um, let me ask you one more question, and then if you're willing, yeah. and if we have time, I want, I'll you, be to quick. Read, I'll be I want quick. you to read a passage from Oh, look at this. A passage that I choose. Okay, Pass- okay? passage right. of your choice. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so here's the question. So I've often heard you quote Howard Thurman yeah. um, in lots of talks and interviews, especially this from, from his work, Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, the masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. Mm-hmm. What does our religion say to them? And I've heard you frame your scholarly project in terms of the question, what does any of this mean for the disinherited that you want to keep that front and center in your scholarship? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could say more about that orienting question and then answer it with respect to the church calendar. Uh, because in my, um, a lot of times when you hear about Lent, it's described primarily in terms of this is good for you personally, spiritually. And so my question is, how does observing the church year matter for those who live with their backs against the wall? What does the season of Lent, what difference does that make for the disinherited? Oh, that's easy. I thought you were going to give me a scary question. Um, you can a- answer the scarier one. Uh, no, no, okay. <laughs> the, um, I know. Uh, um, so I think that fundamental to Lent is that we have failed individually and corporately. The assumption of Lent is that not some of the church will fail, is that the church will fail. And there is an owning of one's failure inherent to Lent, not the only part of Lent. And I think that one problem that plagues the Western church or parts of the Western church is the fear that if we tell the truth about what we've done, there's nothing on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that Lent gives us the opportunity to say, we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, things we have done and left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For this, we are truly sorry and humbly repent. So we can actually say there is the possibility of acknowledging our failure. 
And I would say if you go back to, and this is extensively in the book, if you go back to the old um, examinations of conscience, you go into like some of the old Catholic prayer books and read through how they examine, how you're supposed to examine your conscience. And a lot of them do, there's a quote where you talk about, do I hold any racial prejudices? In so in other words, the introspection of Lent doesn't just ask you about the sins that you already know about. Mm. It asks you to think about the sins you haven't even considered. And the glorious part about Lent is that at the end, it, it, it ends in the sense that even if you fail, Christ is still risen. Mm. So it doesn't expect you to arrive at um, full healing in, in a moment. It shows you that the Christian life is one of consistent repentance. Mm. And so for the disinherited peoples of the world, if the church had actually fully confessed its sins at, at, at Lent, it'd be transformative. Now, as far as the as far as as us, um, as the people who have experienced those kinds of things, I think that one of the tricky parts um, you have to push back on the majority, and there's a danger there of self righteousness because everybody's gotten it wrong, you've gotten it right, and you have to go around and say to night people who have the majority opinion, y'all wrong. And I think that, that that Lent gives us the opportunity, too, to say, okay, what are the ways in which I am not just a victim, but I'm also a victimizer? It doesn't mean that the, the sins are equal. I'm not saying that everyone equally sinned. I'm saying that one of the things about being a Christian is not just that you have been harmed, it's that you participated in harm. And that you too need God's grace and forgiveness, and so the so so the, so the the corporate confession has the potential in Lent to actually be a corporate confession, both the oppressed and the oppressor. They don't have the equal sense to confess to each other, right? That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that we're all in different ways are in need of God's healing, and that'll be good for us to learn during Lent. Mm. Okay, so the passage that I'd like you to read, if you're willing, you can okay, choose Okay, I'm going to read one. it. I just, I just read um, the whole thing for an audio book last week. Okay. So I might at least have the rhythm. Actually, I finished Are you allowed to read? Uh, do you have the rights to read this? Me uh, being a grown man <laughs> who wrote the book, I'm going to read it. So, <laughs> so if, if IVP wants to come for me, no, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, no. Okay, Much so, love to IVP. I don't want them yelling at me. I, I would, love y'all. Thank you for publishing my books. So this chapter, this is the chapter, He Loved Us to the End. And um, you're writing about the prayer that marks the end of Good Friday. Uh, he's good at finding my favorite sentences. You win the gold star <laughs> of finding my favorite part of every book. So would you mind reading the prayer and then your um, comments on it as far as you want to go? Oh, okay. Uh, it this almost gets to the end of the book. So okay. that gives so us where, some where sort does, of... Where does it start here? Uh, just at the bottom there. Okay. Yeah. I'll start before that. Um, okay, good. <laughs> then I, cause I, I never follow rules. Uh, <laughs> Few works of scholarship capture my feelings about the cross better than the prayer that marks the end of Good Friday. It seems fitting then to conclude my discussion of, the, of this most sacred of days with a reflection upon it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set the passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls. Now in the hour of our death, give grace to the living, pardon and rest to the dead, and to your holy church peace and concord, and to us sinners everlasting life and glory. With the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. This is like, man, this is the nerd. You're gonna try to get me. He's trying to get me in my feelings, because this is this is the, this is the sentimental part of the book. This is the plea and cry of every Christian. 
When the time for judgment comes, we must present our case. We do not bring before the throne of the living God a list of our accomplishments. We will not say, Lord, I kept the fast. I avoided meat for 40 days. I increased the fervency of my prayers. And I read the entire Bible cover to cover. We'll not boast of our ties or acts of service. We will tell the Creator what He already knows. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live amongst us as God made flesh. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. He was a long, hopeful king and our great high priest. But we did not recognize him as such. We rejected him. And he died on the cross for our sins. But you raised him up by your mighty power. He appeared to the women and then the remaining apostles. He sent them into the world to spread the good news of his defeat of death and his coming kingdom. This kingdom is acceptable to all, accessible to all but their trust in his saving word. This, through the twists and turns of history, the gospel made its way throughout the world, eventually coming to a black Baptist church in Huntsville, Alabama. They told me about your son, and I believed. I've made a mess of things a hundred times over, but I believed it then, and I believe it still. Christ died for me, and he called me to himself. He promised to save me at the last. Now that I come to the last, I plead the blood. Go ahead. No, did you want to say anything else about it? No, I mean, that's it. I mean, like, in that, I tried to go from the cross all the way down to where the gospel comes to um, the church that I attended growing up. It's um, it's amazing how much of my writing returns to that church in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, My memoir that I'm writing is going to come out in August of 2023. It's close enough for me to start talking about it now. Uh, It's called how I think it's called maybe this will be the first time I've said the title if it actually exists. It may get the title may get changed, but it's currently called How Far to the Promised Land, and it deals with my father passing away and having to write the eulogy for him that I deliver in that same church in Huntsville, Alabama, and it kind of begins with. Um, my life growing up in that same neighborhood, going throughout the entire world, coming back to that church. So it's just amazing to even as I hear that book, how that church has appeared in three of the three of the five books by the time that comes out. So. Mm. Well, thank you for that, and I think in general, my my thanks to you. Just uh, maybe personally, that your writing has meant a, a great deal to me through this chaotic time um, mm. to teach me both to lament but also to hope so thank you for that thank you so much sometimes i feel like i'm a fake scholar because i should be doing more like nerdy biblical scholar stuff and when whenever someone lists out my four books it does feel <laughs> a little bit idiosyncratic um from mm-hmm. galatians to reading about black to josie johnson's hair and the holy spirit to lent but it's all an attempt in in the moment to try to discern like what god is doing in my life and how what God is doing in my life might help other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that it helped you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, our guest has been Dr. Esau McCauley. Thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. 
And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.